Anger Part 2 in Acts Chapter 10 on this episode of The Grey Snapper. Welcome to the Grace Snapper Podcast, a podcast of Grace Church of Napa Valley. I'm your host, Jess Arns. Just to get started today, we're going to talk about anger, but I want to start first with a quick encouragement. I'd like to just do this, the positive end of things. First John chapter 1, 1 through 4. The Apostle John writing toward the end of his life. He says, What was from the beginning and what we've heard, what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, He's talking about, of course, that he was a witness, right? A witness to, to Christ physically. He saw him. Well, he says in verse 2, The life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. I love how the, the intention here is not just to pass on information, but so that those who accept what they're, what they're passing on, the, what they witnessed, the result of them hearing this and believing it is that they have fellowship, that they share in Christ's life. Um, they, they benefit from, with, from the spiritual blessings that they share together. So he says, we proclaim this to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy together may be made complete. He saw and witnessed these things. He passed it on with the intention that we would have fellowship with each other. And our fellowship is in God as well, in Jesus Christ. So we we share, we we have this shared life in Christ. We are one body with the Lord and with each other. And the, and the things that he writes, he's writing them with the intention that our joy would be complete. And what completes that joy is that people believe this message and are added to this fellowship. That's pretty cool. So, that's awesome. But now, let's get into our weekly warning. I want to warn you this week about some unbiblical methods for addressing anger, because that's going to be our topic today, biblical anger management, you might say. In the secular world, they promote anger management. Um, really, uh, they don't really get to the heart of the issue when it comes to how they deal with anger. They, the goal of anger management, uh, in what secular psycho- psychology says, is, um, is that to reduce emotional feelings and physiological arousal that causes anger. So their desire is to reduce those feelings and that causes that, those feelings of anger. And so they encourage their clients to manage anger through expressing, suppressing, and calming the anger. They, you're to express your anger, angry feelings in an assertive non-aggressive manner is the healthiest way to express anger. Of course, this is according to them, according to their studies. This suppressing happens when you hold in your anger and stop thinking about it and focus on something positive. The aim is to inhibit or suppress your anger and convert it into more constructive behavior. 
And this calming means not just controlling your outward behavior, but also controlling your internal responses, taking steps to lower your heart rate and calm yourself down, and let the feeling subside. So this information is coming, uh, quotes, it, the, this stuff is coming from secular psychology being quoted in Jim Neuheiser's little booklet, Help My Anger is Out of Control. I'm just passing on to you some of the helpful tips from this book. Uh, David Pallison wrote a book as well called Good and Angry, if you want more uh, in-depth and more in-depth look that, at the issue. But this is just a helpful little booklet, about 60 pages long, Help My Anger's Out of Control by Jim Neuheiser. And um, anyway, so he's, he's addressing these issues of how secular psychology uh, seeks to control anger but it doesn't get deep enough. It doesn't really get to the heart. Um, that you have, you take anger management classes with strategies to keep anger at bay through like relaxation techniques and cognitive restructuring and communication techniques, uh, changing your environment, stuff like that. So these methodologies, it's really important to understand, don't adequately address the heart of anger. Uh, they just treat humans like they are just physical beings. We're just physical beings interacting with physical stimuli, and there's electrical chemical impulses going on in our brain, and and so they just address it from that, that uh, angle. And they teach some basic techniques for behavior modification um, and stuff like that, but it's powerless against the issue of sin. Okay, and People might be able to uh, control their anger through these techniques, but the, the problem is, is that it doesn't, it doesn't actually uh, work in terms of making you more pleasing to the Lord and how you deal with your anger and how you deal with the desires of your heart. And a lot of Christians have been influenced by this. They've been influenced by secular psychology. And, and one of the things that you hear a lot, and I've heard this a lot, is that Christians are taught, especially by certain therapists, to go ahead and vent their anger in constructive ways, to vent and let their anger out. And it feels good for the moment. So it feels like, okay, yeah, I got it off my chest. But it doesn't really actually help you to deal with your anger and repent of it. All it does is give you practice at venting it, at, uh, at losing your temper. And Proverbs twenty nine eleven says this, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. And so people will, you know, they'll address their anger by trying to vent it. Uh, or maybe they'll sh blame shift and they'll just say, well, this is just how I am. It's just how I was raised. My family was this way. Or maybe it's my genetics. I'm Irish. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, my, my, my Irish blood is, is making me angry. And, um, and so they'll blame that, which is essentially blaming God for how he made them. Okay. And this is an interesting thing that happens in our culture a lot is that sin gets blamed on our, our genetics, um, our nature, um, the way that we were born in a, in a sense that uh, removes responsibility from ourselves. We don't, we don't take the blame for responding to life in sinful ways. And so therefore, who's, who's to blame then? It's God. Uh, or they blame other people, their environment, uh, the people that, uh, that are in their life uh, get the blame, and so they, they don't take responsibility for themselves. Um, so this is important to understand, uh, and just foundationally understanding that the, the first place that we need to start in dealing with anger is we need to deal with the gospel. It starts with the gospel. Uh, understanding that, that all sin 
causes us to fall short of the glory of God. And we need to label these things as sin. Anger in our life, unbiblical, sinful anger, is wrong and deserving of God's judgment and wrath. And we have to own that. Uh, That's a major, major issue. And that God has every right to punish us for that anger, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But that Jesus has come to take that guilt on himself. He's the one that took the wrath that you deserve for unrighteous anger, among other types of sins. And so all who repent of their sins, who acknowledge their sinfulness and turn from it, are freely forgiven and are given a right standing before the Lord. And so that that sense is the, that that understanding of the gospel is the starting place for dealing with anger in a way that actually honors God. You have to own that responsibility and acknowledge that you can't make up for your sin, that Christ had to pay for it and his death was sufficient, and that by faith in him, you are forgiven. So now you, you don't have to be buried under the weight of the guilt of your sin because your anger may have, has, you know, if you're struggling with anger, it has caused some damage in your life, damage to your relationships, and um, maybe you've lost jobs or maybe you've lost even marriages or relationships with your kids or parents because of your anger. And what the gospel does is it gives us hope and forgiveness to understand that we can overcome this, that reconciliation can be made, and you can be made right with God first, and then he gives us the tools to be reconciled with others as well. So that's the weekly warning. Uh, We're going to get into now how do we overcome anger uh, using the word of God. Just had to throw that in there, Austin. That's a transition. All right, weekly warning. We got through the weekly warning in terms of dealing with unbiblical anger. But now let's talk about how to overcome anger by God's grace. And this is really important to understand. That the key to overcoming anger is not through anger management techniques and relaxation and all that kind of stuff. The key to overcoming anger is what you say within your own heart. Proverbs 4.23 talks about this. I'll read this for you real quick. Proverbs 4.23, and it says this. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart. Watch over what you desire and what you think to yourself, especially when your anger is being provoked. Pay attention to what is going through your mind. An angry person has given in to untrue, wicked lies in their own heart. That's what's going on. They're not, it's not external to them. When you are controlled by sinful anger, you might feel like you don't have control over it, but what's actually happening is that you are believing certain lies within your own heart. Perhaps you're telling yourself how righteous you are while you judge others to be, to be worthy of your wrath. Or maybe you are telling yourself that your rage is justified and that you can't help it. The other person has done this horrible thing against you, and so therefore you can't help it. You have to punish them. Uh, or maybe you think that the, the only way to control your anger is to control the people and circumstances in your life that, uh, that cause this anger. Um, a lot of people think that, uh, that they're just reacting to things, that they're not really thinking 
but they're just reacting to the stimuli, the, the things that are going on around them. And so the problem is what's going on around them. But the scripture teaches us that it's dangerous to let our minds just wander, to not control how we think, to just go on autopilot. Proverbs 14.12 says this, 14.12, it says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You have to understand that the way that you naturally think about things is not automatically correct. The way that you automatically respond to things is not automatically correct. In fact, it's mostly automatically wrong without deliberate changing of your thinking and renewing your mind according to God's ways. Your natural reaction to to things is usually controlled by self-centeredness or pride or lust. So we have to understand that We are responsible for how we react, and we are responsible to direct our thoughts according to what is true. Listen to Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What do you dwell on? Is it that kind of stuff? Or are you dwelling on all the stuff that makes you angry? James 1.19 says this, that we are to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Angry people often cool down a a little bit over time, uh, but the heart issues are not addressed by just delaying, okay? So it's important to wait and not just react, to be slow to anger. But But you have to do more than just count to 10. And there's basically five crucial truths an angry person must consider. Five biblical truths truths that an angry person must consider. (laughs) Instead of merely counting to 10 or to 1,000, an angry person needs to stop and fill his mind with biblical truth so he can overcome anger in his heart and become a person of grace. You see... Not just, uh, not just delaying anger, not just not getting angry. It has to be replaced by being a person of grace. When anger is building, these truths do not automatically come to mind. An angry person is suppressing these truths so that he can continue to feed and justify and express his rage. He must learn in crucial moments of temptation to set his mind on things above because he's united to Christ. That's what Colossians 3 says. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So, here are the following five truths that we need to remember. Number one, I want something too much, and that is idolatry. That's coming from James 4. James 4. Listen to this. James 4 says this. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Okay, where do these things come from? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay, so you hear that. You want something too much, and that is idolatry. In fact, it's spiritual adultery. If you go down further in James chapter 4, it says in verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So here's the issue, is that you want something so much that you're willing to sin and destroy relationships and other people in order to get the thing that you want. When you become angry, your desires aren't met. So think about this. What must, what must you have in order to be happy? Is it respect, 
appreciation, comfort, to be comfortable? Is it to have success? Is it to be (laughs) stress-free? These things are not necessarily wrong in themselves, but you you know that you want them too much when you get angry about it. And so God... uh, God wants all of your desires to be submitted to him. And, and so our main desire is to be is to have a right relationship with God and for him to be glorified. Our, our main desire should to be to find satisfaction in him. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says this, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. God is saying, come to me. I offer the satisfaction that you seek. Why do you seek that kind of satisfaction in things like respect for yourself and appreciation and comfort and and success and all these kinds of things? When you're willing to sin in order to obtain what these other things You're sinfully angry, and that is because you have an idol. Here's the second principle that you need to understand, okay? The first one was, I want something too much. That is idolatry. The second principle is this, I am not God, and therefore I'm not the judge. I am not God. When others wrong us, we sense that the balance of justice is out of kilter, and we want to make it right again. And so the angry person thinks to himself, you wronged me, you deserve to be punished. And so that angry person can then punish the guilty party through hateful speech, acts of violence, slander, theft, or more subtly through being cold, quiet, and withdrawn. All of these expressions of anger are sinfully judgmental. Do you see? You're elevating yourself to the place of God and judge. But James 1.20 says this, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So you might think you have the right to do it and that you're achieving some kind of righteousness, but it doesn't. It doesn't fix the problem. Your wrath does not accomplish God's righteousness. Instead of showing wrath, Romans 12 says this, verse 17 says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, so when we do that, we... We usurp God's role as judge. Romans 12, 19 says, Don't take your own revenge, but leave wrath, leave room for the wrath of God. God will repay in his time, and he, he is the only one that can perfectly dole out justice. It, it's, it's really important for us to understand this, that we are not the judge. Not only are we not the judge, we are actually massive sinners, Okay, and this is the third principle to understand that God has been very gracious to me. God has been gracious to me. And when we realize that, that we've been shown such grace, that our debt has been forgiven, okay, we will be willing to forgive others. We'll be willing to be patient with others. You can see this in the parable of the, the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, 23 through 27. The servant was forgiven so much and yet was unwilling to forgive his, his fellow servant who owed him a significant amount, but nothing compared to what he had been forgiven. So it's under, we need to understand this, that the more that we grasp of what we've been forgiven, and the more we dwell on the fact that God has been gracious to us, we'll be gracious and forgiving towards others. We'll be slow to anger and we'll desire to see them repent rather than be punished.
the next principle that we need to understand is that not only not only are we not the judge and not only has God been very gracious to us uh, and that what we want is is out of balance we're, we're wanting something too much but it's really important to understand as well that God is in control and he is doing good for us so the circumstance that I am in God is sovereign over and God is perfectly in control of this. He is in control of this frustrating thing that I'm involved in right now. He is. He could change it. He could change the hearts of the people that I'm dealing with. He could uh, fix it right now, but he's not. And he's not because his plan is perfect and it is good. And this is part of that plan. Just like Joseph refused to judge his brothers. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He was sold into slavery. He was thrown into this pit first and then sold into slavery to Egypt. He didn't see his family for something like 15 years. And then finally he's reunited with them. And now he's in a position of power. He could punish them severely if he wanted to. But instead of punishing them, he says, What you meant for evil, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph was able to act graciously towards his brothers really because his theology was straight. His theology was right. God's in control of this. And God's purposes are good even in the evil acts of other people. And so that enables us to not respond in punitive anger, trying to establish righteousness for ourselves. But it really trusts in God to sort things out and to judge rightly in the end. He rules over all, and we can trust that. Romans 8.28 says that all things are working together for our good. God is literally working each thing for our good. It also says in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that because he is sovereign and he's in control and he is good, he will not tempt us, he will not put us in a temptation beyond what we are able to bear. Now listen, God doesn't tempt anyone. He's not the source of sin or sinful temptation. But he is in control of the circumstances of your life. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. That doesn't mean that you are going to have the strength to deal with every circumstance. What that means is that you don't have to sin. You will never be tempted in such a way that you must respond sinfully. And so that's why it's important to understand that when you, when you are sinfully angry, even though it feels like you don't have any control over that, the truth is you do. That God has put a circumstance in your life and your call is to respond righteously in that circumstance and he's given you what you need in order to do that. And as a believer, you are a new creature in Christ. You no longer have to respond in sinful ways to these trials. Angry people often feel stuck in their rage and they feel helpless to change. And while it's true that unbelievers are enslaved to sin, those who are united to Christ by faith have been set free from sin's bondage. This is super important to understand. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. Even if they get their anger under control, they're still enslaved to sin. Sinful purposes and pleasures and uh, pride and, all the, and, and motivations. But those who are united to Christ are set free. You're no longer stuck. You don't have to do this anymore. We've died to sin through Christ. And now we're united to him in, in newness of life. And so we're no longer to be controlled by the flesh. Instead, we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is the one producing the fruit in our life. And so by faith, we trust in him. 
by faith we go to God. We know we can't make up for it, punish ourselves. We can't, no techniques or whatever, make up for our sin. Instead, we go to the Lord and ask for Him, His Spirit to control us. We confess our sin to Him, and we believe the things that He has said. And so by faith, working through love, we are able to overcome the sin in our life. The person who gets sinfully angry has forgotten his new gospel identity in Christ. You're dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we need to renew our minds in these ways. Next time we'll talk about practical ways that you can overcome anger. And now we get the great privilege of reading Acts chapter 10 together. All right, we get to read this super awesome passage about the first Gentiles to be given the Holy Spirit. This is a really cool thing. So uh, at, I'm going to resist the temptation to preach on it. I'm just going to read it to you. Maybe a couple of comments here and there, but uh, this is super awesome. Acts chapter 10. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his eyes on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Just a quick note. In the Old Testament, there were regulations that God gave regarding which animals could be eaten and which ones could not. There were certain animals that were considered clean animals, like cows. They chewed the cud and they had a cleft foot, and they were considered clean animals to eat. But animals that were unclean, like pigs, uh, were, were not to be touched, were not to be eaten. Even to this day, uh, devout Jews don't eat pork. Well, so Peter, wanting to be faithful to the Old Testament law, says, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. We'll get to that in a minute of what he meant by this. Well, this happened three times. And immediately, verse 16, the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, 
The men, who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up and go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by an angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. You know what's really interesting here is that uh, God is deliberately tying the message of the gospel to the apostles. You know, in, in the book of Ephesians, it talks about the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone, but that it's built on the foundation, that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, with Christ being the cornerstone. It's super important to connect the teaching that we teach and believe today, the gospel we preach and proclaim today, what we know of Christ, it has to be built on the foundation of the apostles. In fact, I think that's 1 Corinthians as well. 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 3 talks about that. That the this is this is the foundation, and we can't lay anything else on, we can't lay a different foundation. We, there are no other apostles. Uh, God very easily could have sent his angel and preached the gospel to Cornelius himself, but he tied it specifically to Peter, who was really the, the lead apostle, at the time. So he invited them and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he got up, that being Peter, and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea, and now Cornelius was waiting for them. And he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshiped him. (laughs) But Peter raised him up and said, stand up. I too am just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. See, in the Old Testament, Jews and Gentiles were to be separate. That the Jews did not associate with the Gentiles. That they were to be a holy people distinct from the Gentile nations. Well, now God has cleansed them, and it's through Christ that he's cleansing people of every tribe, tongue, nation. All those, all those people are being cleansed from their sin and now are being formed into a new body called the church. And so that vision where God says, look, don't call anything unholy that I have called clean. Now Peter's understanding, oh, this is what he was talking about. So he says here, that is why I came, uh, God gave me a vision, God showed me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Verse 29, that is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon, the tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter said, 
I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which is sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in, Jer- in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as a judge of the living and the dead. Isn't that interesting? That's part of the gospel, that Jesus has been raised. And the first part is that he's been raised and appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So he's the judge. And if he forgives you, there's no one left to judge you. (laughs) Well, verse 44, this is super amazing. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, the circumcised being the Jews, They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They weren't expecting that. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And that's the end of Acts chapter 10. And that, that message has made its way down through the ages to us. We are, most of us are Gentiles, and uh, God has determined that we would no longer be left outside of the covenants, that we would no longer be aliens and strangers to uh, the covenants of promise, but rather we are grafted in and now held on equal footing with everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is super awesome. Well, thank you for listening to The Gray Schnapper. For more information, go to gracenapa.org. And until next time, keep swimming.